0: The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. The running illustration we've been using through this series is about mountain climbing. And it's not just any mountain, but like talking about what it means to climb some of the highest mountains in the world, Mount Everest. Uh, k two some of the mountains like that and, and through this series, the more that i've researched, the less likely it is that I will ever personally attempt to climb a mountain okay i mean the, the I know that you can fall off a mountain, okay, I know that you could maybe like freeze, i know there's a lot of bad things, but the more that i've i've researched, the more different types of terrible things i've learned that can happen to you when you're up on a mountain, and one thing that I learned about is something called. Altitude sickness. And altitude sickness is this kind of disease, really, that happens to you once you're up past a certain altitude level and your body hasn't adjusted. So, if you're gonna climb, you know, up, especially one of the 8,000ers, up 8,000, past 8,000 meters, you've really gotta go slowly and let your body adjust. And it, you don't, it's no science to it, you've just gotta you kinda just take, take your time going up. And if you go up too quickly, the problem is, your brain can't get enough oxygen because of the pressure. It can't take in, your body can't take in the same amount of oxygen it can at a lower altitude. And so it can start messing with your brain and you can get altitude sickness. You can get just fatigue, you can get nausea, you can get intense headaches, and you could actually die from altitude sickness. But one of the strangest symptoms that you can experience from altitude sickness is hallucinations. Now, can you think of one thing as, I mean, every step as you're climbing a mountain, one wrong step and you could die. I can't think of a worse thing to also have while you're climbing than hallucinations. Okay, so there was a a group of psychiatrists did a study on altitude sickness and hallucinations and how it works. And so they uh, put out a journal article based on their, their study and they interviewed multiple different climbers who had climbed up to extreme heights and asked them if they had ever had the experience of hallucinations and all of them said that they had had hallucinations so for example one guy said he was climbing he was all by himself but for an entire day he felt constantly that there was a guy walking behind him about 15 feet behind him constantly and he's walking and every now and then he'd like turn around and the guy was gone he wasn't there Because that's exactly what I want while I'm climbing a mountain, okay? Another guy said that he was, all of a sudden heard a bunch of French people talking to him. And he started responding in French. And of course, there was no one else there. And then he said, the craziest thing is, I don't even know French. Okay, all right, sounds healthy. Another guy reported, he said, I was climbing up. He's like, I really wanted to get up this mountain. I didn't want to turn back for anything. He says, I was climbing up this mountain. He says, and I looked over and I saw a woman walking towards me in this like billowy dress. And I'm like, man, what is she doing up here? It was just really strange. And then he realized I must be hallucinating. And so then he said, but I didn't tell one of my guides because I knew they would immediately take me down the mountain. And he says he kept walking and then his buddy comes up to him and says, dude, Did you see those monkeys playing over there in the snow? (laughs) Abort mission at that point, okay? You know, if you're thinking about mountain climbing, here is my advice to you, okay? Over off I-75 and Griffin Road, there's a park called Vista View. There's a mountain. It's our South Florida mountain. I've climbed it many times, very safe. That would be my recommendation, okay? Climbing mountains... There's all kinds of things that can happen to you while you're climbing mountains, and there's great parallels into our lives with whatever we're trying to climb, you know, whatever, whatever we're trying to accomplish, whatever, we're try, whatever goals we're trying to reach, and as we're climbing up mountains, as we're leading the way in that, in that climb in our own life, whether it's in our family, or it's in our personal life, or it's at work, or it's something here at your church, you know, as you're climbing up that mountain, we will face obstacles, We will face them. And there's one obstacle that's very similar to the hallucinations of altitude sickness. There's something that we all have to face and we all have to learn how to deal with. It's very common. It's where we're seeing something, but we're trying to discern if what we're seeing is actually reality. We're trying to discern what's behind that. It's manipulation. There's obstacles. Every single one of us we will face this. It's like, okay, well, that person's saying this, but is that really what they mean? Okay, the person, it looks like this is what the situation's about, but are there intentions behind that that aren't really there? We're seeing one thing, but we have to discern if that's reality. And it's a very difficult thing. Dis- discernment and discerning manipulation is very tricky in our lives for, for a couple of reasons. The first is because very similar to hallucinations, we kind of need someone else to weigh in on what we're seeing. Because if you're seeing something, you, you, all you can see is what you can see. In other words, it's very hard to know if you're good at discernment. Most people want to think, yeah, I'm discerning. But we can only see what we can see. And the reality is we need other people speaking into our life, and we need to be like, Look, okay, are you seeing dancing monkeys? Because I'm seeing dancing monkeys right now. We need someone else speaking into our life. That's what makes it tricky about discernment. You're seeing something, but you're not really sure if that's really what's there. But there's another part that makes discerning and discerning manipulation very tricky. And it's if you're a person of faith, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian. Here's why. Because a lot of the things we learn about being a Christian seem like they run in tension to discernment. We want to be discerning. We know it's good to be discerning, but we also know that we shouldn't be judgmental. So, where does one leave off and the other pick up? Like we want to be a trusting person. We don't want to be like paranoid and believe everyone's evil. We want to think the best of people, but we also don't want to be taken advantage of. You know, we we want to be able to perceive correctly, but we, we also don't want to be paranoid. We don't want to be naive but we also don't want to be just distrustful of everyone around us. And so when you add the faith component and the call of the Christian to be gracious and loving and generous and benevolent, when you add that into the Christian life, learning how at the same time to discern accurately can be very tricky. Chances are there's some place in your life right now, a relationship that is, needs a good dose of discernment in your life right now. And we're going to look at the story of Nehemiah, this great leader, and, and what we learn from him we learn how he deals and how he discerns and we learn some truths about manipulation and some truths about discernment and that we're that we're going to learn from. We're going to look at, at uh, Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 1. And as you're turning there, let me just give you the quick background of what's happening in the story. The story takes place in Jerusalem several hundred years before Jesus, the time of Jesus. And Jerusalem at this time is not the bustling thriving city that it was in Jesus' day. At this point, it's in ruins. And the people of Jerusalem are trying to rebuild the city and especially rebuild the walls so that they can be protected from outside forces. And the leader at this time is a guy named Nehemiah, and he's leading the charge here. He's the catalyst that's bringing about the rebuilding of the wall. But there are other cities and kingdoms around, other rulers, that absolutely are opposing every step of the wall because they don't want another thriving city in the area cutting in to the profits they're getting from the trade in the region. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Look what it says. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah, those are the bad guys, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, "Come and let us meet together at Hachafirim in the plain of Ono." But they intended to do me harm. All right, now let's just hang on this here for a second. Sanballat and Tobiah, these are the bad guys. They have constantly been against what they've done. They have ridiculed they have discouraged They've threatened. They've plotted to attack them. I mean, over and over and over. And now he gets a letter. Nehemiah gets a letter. I mean, they have been the thorn in his side. They have been just constantly the opposition. And now Nehemiah gets a letter. And the letter says, okay, look, let's meet up. Now, that's a pretty decent request. I mean, you could be, if you're Nehemiah, you might be saying, okay, you know what? Maybe I can just... Put this to rest once and for all. Maybe I can talk to them. Maybe I can get them on my side. You know, maybe I can at least meet with them. I mean, I should at least meet with them, right? I I shouldn't just completely blow them off. I should at least meet with them. That's decent enough. Maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe I can talk some sense into them or cast some vision or draw them over on my side or call off the dogs. They say, look, can we meet? And I want you to see Nehemiah's discernment. He knows right off the bat. This is just another angle. They're trying to harm me. It's interesting that he, he doesn't really know and he still doesn't know what their plans were. They might have been trying to kill him. They might have been trying to capture them. I mean, they've, they've rallied their troops. They've already planned various attacks on Jerusalem. So they're capable of anything. They will stop at nothing. Maybe they'll kidnap him for ransom and say, hey, look, you stop the walls or we'll kill Nehemiah. Who knows what they were going to do? But Nehemiah knows that they're going to do him harm. He's perceiving, he's being discerning that this plan to meet up is not what it seems. So look at what he says, verse 3. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. This is one of the, the, my favorite verses in the entire book of Nehemiah. He simply says his response, no excuses, doesn't play any games, doesn't try and be deceptive back. He simply says, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. He says this profound phrase. He says, I am doing a great work. He says, I can't come down right now. What I've got right here, I cannot come down. I cannot be distracted. I'm not putting up with this. I cannot be distracted. The first thing I want you to see here is he doesn't play their game. He doesn't say, yeah, sure, I'll meet you there, and then doesn't show up. Or, yeah, and he doesn't, like, send deception back. He doesn't engage in their game. He says, no, I don't have time for that. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. I'm I'm doing God's work right here. I cannot be distracted and I cannot put up with your deception and your manipulation. And then I want you to see what they do next. You see that they send him a similar message four times and each time it's the same message. Okay, they're trying to deceive him. You know, they're trying, they've stopped at nothing figure out how they can keep this wall from being completed. Don't you know that they threw everything at them that they had? And we don't know what each message says, but I imagine it was something like this. Maybe the next time, the first one's just an instant, hey, let's just meet up, man. Let's meet up. No, I'm doing great work. I can't come down. So maybe the second time it was let's try flattery. Look, Nehemiah, look, man, we got off to a wrong foot here. I, I, look, here's the thing. You're doing a great job with that wall. In fact, we really want to rebuild our walls a little bit. Maybe we could get some tips from you. And man, what a visionary leader you are. We were hoping to do some team building here. Could you just come and just lead us through some team building exercises and just give us, kind of give us a speech and pump us up. How do we rally our cities like you've rallied your cities? Maybe they tried some flattery. And Nehemiah said, doing a great work, man. I I can't be distracted. Sorry, I can't. They try a second time. Maybe this time they over-spiritualize it. Maybe that's their tactic. They tried flattery. Now they're going to make it all spiritual. You know what? We just want to bury the hatchet. That's what we're really wanting, Nehemiah. You you know they're going to try anything. So maybe it's like, look, Nehemiah, we really feel bad we're sorry for the things we've done. You're sorry for the things you've done. It's been ugly, but man, let's just, let's just pray together. We'll hold hands in a circle and sway back and forth. Nehemiah, this is going to be a great meeting. We're gonna, we're gonna, we'll even study your scriptures. You know, let, let's just bury the hatchet. Sounds super spiritual. You know what Nehemiah responded? I can't. Doesn't give him a big explanation. I can't. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Maybe the fourth time is when they really turned the knife. Maybe they use guilt. Man, isn't guilt like the most common weapon in manipulation? I I got your last message, Nehemiah, about not wanting to bury the hatchet, and gosh, I thought you were a man of God. I mean, doesn't your scriptures say that you're supposed to forgive everyone, and, and man, we're trying to meet with you, and now you won't meet with us? I can't believe that, Nehemiah. What kind of leader are you? You're supposed to be the leader in the city of God in Jerusalem, and you're leading the way, but you won't meet with us, and here we're trying to, we, we want to get along. We're trying to have peace and harmony. I thought, you were all about shalom in the land, and we're trying to bring shalom, and you don't want to, I mean, I wonder if they just dug the knife, man, you're not who you say you are. You must not be a godly person, and turn the knife of guilt, you know what Nehemiah said? Sorry, I can't. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Didn't put up with it. He didn't say, well, here's the real thing about being a godly man. I'll tell you what forgiveness and peace says. No. I don't know why he's typing, but somehow that's how he sent messages back. <laughs> you know, he, he, maybe it's this. I don't know what he's doing, but um, smoke signal. Send this smoke signal back. Anyway, you know, no, he doesn't th- type off this letter or, or have a scribe furiously write a letter or anything like that. No, he just says, look, I'm doing a great work. I, I, can't, I can't come down. I, I can't stop for this. Okay, standing in the face of manipulation, he perceives exactly what's going on. Does he get in the midst of it? Does he play the game? Does he let it? He's a brick wall, bounces right off him. He doesn't play. He knows what's happening. He doesn't play. Now, I want you to jump down to... to Verse ten, because I want you to see, there's another in the same episode. We're going to jump down to later in the chapter. There's another type of manipulation. Okay, check this out. It says this. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. All right, now I want you to notice before we go any further, this is a guy who lives in Jerusalem. This is a Jewish person. This is one of his people. It's one of his own men. He, it sounds like he's calling for Nehemiah. I've got a message for you. He comes and visits the man in his house. He's like, I'm telling you, we've got to lock ourselves in the temple, Nehemiah. They're coming for you tonight. They're going to kill you tonight. Let's go get rally people inside the temple. Let's lock ourselves in there. Look at his responses. Verse 11. But I said, so should such a man as I run away? And what Man, such as I, could go into the temple and live. I will not go in. Now look. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Let's keep going. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobias, Sambalot, and Sambalot, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, no idea, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Do you see what's happening here? This isn't just a buddy that's pulling him aside and saying, man, I'm concerned for you. Like, I think they're coming tonight. Just something said, or I heard something. Do you see what's happening? They're prophesying. These are prophets saying, I have a message for you from God. Thus saith the Lord, they are coming to kill you tonight. Go hide in the temple. Do you realize they are saying their words are from God? We find out that it's actually prophecy that they're saying. This guy told Nehemiah to come to his house. He says, I have a word from God for you. God told me something for you. It's not just him. There are other prophets and prophetesses that are, that are in the city that are saying it's the same thing. They are going to kill you, thus saith the Lord. Do you realize, according to Old Testament law, that false prophecy is a capital offense? You execute a false prophet. Let alone, because it's blasphemy. You're saying this is what God is saying. You're misrepresenting God. Let alone the fact that they're prophets for hire. It's Sanballat and Tobiah again behind them. Okay, it's one thing to discern manipulation when you get a letter. Man, that's a whole nother level of discernment. When it's your own people speaking to you, let alone saying, God told me to tell you this. Can you imagine being Nehemiah? He's got to be like, okay, God, am I missing something? I mean, am I just being paranoid here because... I mean, they're saying that it's from you, but here's what he realized. He realized he said falling for their deceit he felt like was a sin. And so he's discerning. You know what? No, you're not from God. Well, thus saith the Lord. This is what God is saying. No, that's not what God is saying. I'm not going to do that. Man, that's a whole nother layer of discernment that he had to have, a whole nother level of manipulation. I want to look at verse 15 Before we stop, look at this verse. Verse fifteen. It says this: So the wall was finished on the twenty fifth day of the month of Elul in fifty two days. Do you realize that? How fast they finished the wall? The wall's done. We've gotten to the part of the story. They finished the wall. Do you realize how fast they finished that wall? They finished it in under two months. You realize we've been studying Nehemiah longer than it took them to actually build the wall. In under two months, they finished this wall. So here's that's not only an incredible act of God working through them as they're working hard, but here's the other thing that's just mind blowing. All that opposition, they faced all of that in less than two months. Do you realize how packed with opposition that was? I mean, they've faced ridicule and discouragement and their own inner battles of things like entitlement, and then now they're facing manipulation. And of all of these different types of opposition, man, sometimes the trickiest, the trickiest is manipulation. Because you're you're trying to perceive: am I, am I seeing right here? Because this is what I'm seeing, but is that really true? Man, it looks like this, but is that really what it is? It's like a hallucination. Okay, is that for real? Or what's behind that? It's so tricky because you get all these things mixing. You're like, okay, I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus was so gracious, so giving. He was so generous, man. He believed in people, saw the best in people. But at the same time, I don't want to be naive and taken advantage of and gullible. I don't want to be all those kinds of things. So how do I find that balance? What, what am I supposed to be as a Christian? I want you to see what, what Jesus says about being discerning. I, I love this verse. Let me just read it to you. It's going to be up on the screens. It's Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Look, what, This is Jesus' words. He says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Look at this. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Most translations say shrewd as serpents. And I like that, one, that word a little bit better. I want you to think, this is a perfect genius illustration. I want you to think of these two animals, a dove and a serpent. I want you to think about a dove, okay? If you've ever seen a dove or a pigeon, they're probably the dumbest animal on planet Earth, okay? They have these, like, bright eyes. Their eyes are, like, really wide, okay? Like, and they just appear places, like, hey, what's going on? Okay, the, the, the building could be on fire, and they're like, oh, what's over here? And they just come over there, just looking around. Now, I want you to think about a serpent, This was a symbol through uh, antiquity of shrewdness. I mean, think of it as as it's going through the grass after prey. And it's like every single muscle is intentional. It's like it, it it knows every single thing around it. It is poised, ready for action. I mean, it's like, what a picture of shrewdness and innocence. And here's what Jesus is saying. You've got to be as shrewd as a serpent, but as innocent as a dove. In other words, let's put it a different way. You've got to be able to perceive the game, but don't play the game. Saying in the world is usually, kind of breaks into two categories. It's those who, who get all those dynamics, they see all the politics, they see all the motivations, they can see what's behind, and those who can perceive, they do it. And then there's the other categories. People, they're just good-natured, trusting people. They're the doves. They're, they're like, look, I, I never pick up on those things. And, and so they never, they never perpetrate it. They never do that. They, never, they don't pick up on manipulation and they don't manipulate. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's actually commanding. He's saying... You can't be only as innocent as a dove and certainly don't only be a shrewd snake. It's like you've got to have the shrewdness. You've got to be able to see what's happening. You have to be able to see and perceive the game and be discerning to see what's going on. You have to learn that skill. Be shrewd like a snake, but don't play the game. Perceive the game, but don't play the game. Be innocent in your actions. Know what's going on, but don't try and manipulate and coerce others. Now, here are the chances. The chances are, the likelihood is all of us right now, this is so common to humanity, manipulation. Manipulation sounds like a big, strong word, but it is so common to humanity. So uh, my, uh, my daughter, Scarlett, is uh, two and a half. And then my son, uh, we actually named him after this character in the Bible. His name is Nehemiah. And he is um, just about to turn one. And she, Scarlett, loves her little brother. She she kisses him and wants to hold him and bathe him, and she tries to pick him up, which sends terror through Rebecca and I. And so, But she loves her little brother. But when he started to get mobile, that was a game changer because she was used to all the toys around their mind. And now Nehemiah is crawling around, and he's picking up toys. And I, I kind of like, feel for her because every time she gets a toy back from Nehemiah, it's covered in slobber. Okay? So I kind of feel bad for Scarlett, but she's learning to share. And so for a long time she'd be on one side of the room and she'd see him grab a toy and she'd go, no. And she'd run over, say, mine. And she'd take it and we'd have to teach her to share it. No, Scarlet, Nehemiah was playing with that. Give him the toy back. And so she's like, oh, you know, and she'd give him the toy back. And, you know, it was hard. She's building this character, sharing. And it was like that over and over and over. And then one day, she was playing with a toy. And Nehemiah comes crawling over and he t- tries to take the toy out of her hands. And it was like the table had turned. And uh, we said, Nehemiah, let me take that toy back. Scarlet was playing with it. Now, of course, Nehemiah doesn't know what we're saying, but you know, it was, it was more for Scarlet to hear that, no, it goes both ways. And I all of a sudden saw the wheels turning in her little brain. And she's like, that kind of felt good. <laughs> yeah, seriously, what the heck? It's not just me, it's this guy here too. <laughs> and so she's holding her toy, and I watched her, and she's like processing this, and she goes over by Nehemiah, and she goes... Like this? And Nehemiah is like, just reaches up. She goes, No! Like this. And she pulls it back. And so now we have a new thing to help her. Okay, you can't tease your little brother either, okay? All right, manipulation, it is just common to humanity. And I don't think that everyone is evil. Like, I think most people who are manipulating, it's maybe that are being manipulative. It's probably more instinctive. They're probably not like an evil mastermind, you know, sitting back there thinking. There are those people and probably more than we would care to admit. But not everyone is like that. In fact, there's probably ways we manipulate that are just reflect, just a reflex. But We have to be able to perceive and there's probably a difficult relationship in your life right now that you're saying, God, help me know how to do this. And so to learn that skill, it's so difficult to learn. I want to just talk about the top four things to help shape how we we can, to help our discernment. So if you're a note taker, these are going to be up on the screens. The first one is this, and this is so important. This is the number one thing to build in our mind to help us be thinking through how to discern. Here's the first one. Don't confuse responsibility with guilt. Just because someone is guilting you about not doing something, doesn't mean that was your responsibility. You've got to be able to say, okay, I feel really guilty. They made me feel really guilty, and, and, and I'm feeling that right now. But that doesn't mean that was really my responsibility. And we can't confuse those things. Yeah, and this happens, I mean, this happens in families a whole lot. So it's the grandparent and their kids, you know, there's new grandbabies and the kids, maybe the kids are making the grandparents feel guilty for not being more involved. Like, why can't you help? Don't you love your grandkids? And there's guilt. But it can also happen the other way, can't it? How can we never bring the grandkids around? I just want to see my grandkids every now and then. Is that so much to ask? Man, guilt, just because someone's making you feel guilty, you have to have the discernment. They're probably not an evil mastermind. It's probably, they're not meaning to manipulate. It's a reflex, but it's a common thing in humanity, but we have to be able to separate guilt from responsibility. Am I just feeling, are they just making me feel guilty or is this really my responsibility? Because a completely okay response is, I'm sorry, I'm building something right now. I wish I could, but I can't. I can't. I'm sorry. Don't confuse responsibility with guilt. Here's the second one, and this is also a key one. Don't confuse faith with facade. So you go to work, you're starting a new job, and there's a person there that says, that you learn, oh, they go to church. They they go to such and such church down the way and they say they're a Christian. And maybe our, our instinct is to be like, oh, this is another Christian. I can trust them. I can be vulnerable with them. I can share. I can lean on them. I can know they've got my back. I can share very openly with them. And maybe we too quickly give them a lot of trust and a lot of vulnerability. But you know what the scripture says? Don't do that. It says, judge a tree by its fruit. If you're walking by, how do you know it's an apple tree? Does it produce apples? That's how you know. It's not just because it claims to be an apple tree. It produces fruit. And so be careful that just because the facade says Christian that you wait and you see what the fruit is. Just because someone says they're a Christian, it doesn't mean, oh, they'll be a great business partner. Or just because you see their profile on a Christian dating site doesn't mean that they have the right intentions. Don't confuse faith with facade. Here's the third one. This is an important one. Man, there, there's probably someone here who's working through this one this morning. Don't confuse forgiveness with restoration. You know, there may be someone in your life that, you know, they hurt you. And, and they say, man, and you said, okay, I, I, I'm really hurt, but I forgive you. And then down the road, they're saying, how come things aren't like they were before? I thought you forgave me. You're supposed to let me back in. But see, we have to break apart. There's a difference between forgiveness and restoration. In fact, when you're, when you're bringing a restored relationship back together, there's three different phases. One is forgiveness, one is reconciliation, and one is restoration. You've got to hear this. Forgiveness is when it's, it's a heart issue between you and God. It's where you say, you know what? I no longer hold this offense against them. I'm no longer mad at them. I'm letting them go free. And Christian, every Christian is called to forgive for everything. Because we have been forgiven by God infinitely more. And sometimes we go to the next, usually, not always, there are times that this is a dangerous, not appropriate thing to do. But usually Christian pursue an opportunity to reconcile. What that means is you sit down face-to-face and you bury the hatchet. You say, I forgive you. Is there anything that I need to ask for forgiveness for? You have that face-to-face and you bury the hatchet. There are some times where even that is not appropriate and it's dangerous. But if you're a Christian, in almost every case, you pursue that opportunity, whether you think they'll listen or not. But then there's a third category and that's restoration. And that is sometimes appropriate, but sometimes very dangerous. And restoration is where you then bring the relationship back to where it was. But there are some relationships, some interactions, that through that season you learned that this is not a safe person to have that level of relationship with. And so even though I forgive them and I may reconcile, I've learned something and I'm not going to put myself back in that place. It's someone who took advantage of me. It's someone who abused me emotionally, verbally, physically, sexually. It's someone who has manipulated me. It's someone who truly does not have my best interest in mind. Maybe it was someone, it was a mentor who stabbed me in the back and I'm not going to then become mentored by them again. It's a, it was a relationship that I was in, and I was mistreated by that person, and so yeah, I may forgive them, but I'm not going to go back to that level of intimacy in that relationship. I'm not going to necessarily restore it. That's not healthy. So while, all, while believers, we are to wrestle with forgiveness, and that is a tremendously difficult thing, most of the time we reconcile, some of the time we restore. But there may be a manipulation going on in your life right now, or someone's, Trying to guilt you or over spiritual. I thought well, you forgave me. Why aren't we back to where we were? And it's okay to draw that boundary because forgiveness is different than restoration. Now, here's the last one. And I wish this didn't have to be one, but this is one. And, and this can cause so much damage. Don't confuse God's truth with God's messengers. Well, what do you mean by God's messengers? That's anyone that God is using in your life to speak truth into your life. That could be a preacher, a pastor, a church leader, it could be a, maybe a Sunday school teacher or community group leader. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. It could be a mentor, someone that God has used. Don't confuse God's truth with God's messenger because all of God's messengers Are flawed. All of them. And Christian, what we're called to do is to hold that in truth and say, Praise God that God has used that flawed person in my life. But they're not infallible, they're capable of being wrong. And so, what do I do? Well, then I I take what's being said. This is what the Bible prescribes, it tells us to do that. It takes what is being said from that person that you love and trust and you hold it up to the Bible. And you compare. Any sermon you hear, whether at West Pines or at any other church, anytime you hear God's truth, here's what you should do say, okay, that sounded good. Let me, not, do I like it? No, don't ask that question because that's irrelevant. Say, okay, that's good. Does it hold up with the Bible? That's what you should do. Don't confuse God's messengers with God's truth. Because that's a place, if someone has that power over you, where they're acting in your life as if they are infallible, that's a very dangerous dynamic. If someone comes up to you and says, hey, God put this on my heart for you, do what Nehemiah said. Okay, let me test that with the scripture and I'll decide if I believe that's from God. Don't confuse God's messengers with God's truth. You know, there's so many other different types of manipulations and deceptions that can happen. And we've got to pray for discernment. We've got to use each other for discernment. And of all these difficult things, you know, these are all things that our Savior faced down as well. I want you to remember when Jesus was on the cross. He was crucified. He's been whipped and he's been beaten and he's been nailed to the cross and he's suffering in agony. Every moment is just terrifying pain. Everything in his flesh wanted to be done. And being God in the flesh, he could have stopped it at an instant. And then there were these religious leaders. Shouldn't they have been the one that they had studied over the Old Testament scriptures? They should have been the one to know that he was the Messiah. And you know what they said to him? If you're really the Christ, look at this guy. If you're the Christ, you would be able to come down. I thought you were the Messiah. Prove it it wasn't just the religious leaders, then the crowds come around and they said, you said you were here to save, but look, you can't even save yourself. I thought you were the great worker of miracles. And then there was the, the Roman soldiers. Look, this is the king of the Jews. Yeah, he doesn't look much like a king. If you're really the king, then why are you up there on the cross? Taunting him, challenging him to prove it. And if that wasn't bad enough, the other people crucified the same day on either side in their own agony. They start mocking him, manipulating him, challenging him, taunting him. And they say, man, I thought you were the son of God. If God loves you, why would God let you suffer like this? And you know what Jesus did? He just stayed right there on the cross. He asked that God would forgive them. And you know what he was saying? I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. You know what that great work was? He was purchasing your forgiveness. He was buying God's grace to flood over you. So that even though you and I stand before God condemned. With our sins and all the mistakes we've made and our checkered pasts the skeletons in our closet on that cross he was doing a great work of washing all of that away so that we can be covered by the forgiveness of god you may be here and you may be saying i'm too far gone you may be saying look i god doesn't want me i'm messed up you may be even convicted i'm a manipulator I've done that to people and I'm convicted and I I sense, why would God want me? I'm so far from what he wants. Do you realize Jesus did a great work for you and you can can just accept that forgiveness today? If that's you, I wanna give you an opportunity to respond and to receive Jesus' forgiveness for the first time because all you have to do is accept it one time and and you're beginning a new life with Jesus permanently. I wanna give you that opportunity to begin that journey. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, I want you to pray this simple prayer right there in your seat, just between you and God. Say, Jesus, I know that I don't deserve your grace, your mercy. I know I don't deserve forgiveness, but you are offering it freely out of your love, and I thank you for that. So I accept your forgiveness today, and I want to walk in a brand new life. In Jesus' name.